So I'll do what we have done the last four weeks before, is I will first read that core value out loud, and then I will turn our attention to Ephesians 1. So looking at our core value, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, has lived, died, and is risen again for those given to him by the Father. Through his atoning death upon the cross and the gift of saving faith, believers can know that because God's wrath against their sin was exhausted, they are freely forgiven, graciously redeemed and reconciled to God, given new life through the transforming power of his Holy Spirit, set free to love him and live for him, and guaranteed eternal life in his presence in heaven. It's a big statement. So let's turn to hear God's explanation of the gospel. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen, let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for preserving it for us through the generations that we might have it now, read in a common language that we understand. Oh Lord, give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Father, remind us of the treasure that is ours through Jesus Christ through the gospel, the good news, that we belong unto you. Father, I pray that your people would be encouraged, Lord, that they would be spurned on to grow in the grace and knowledge and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would bring those to a point of salvation this morning, if there be any here who do not know you. By your spirit, God, would you change their hearts and give them life this day? Encourage us in the truth. Help me, your servant. Protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading one time 
about a, a Navajo Indian who had become rich when oil was found on his property. He took all the money he made from that oil and he deposited it in a local bank. It didn't take long for his banker to become familiar with the habits of this gentleman. You see, occasionally this Navajo Indian man would show up at the bank and he would walk up to the banker and this is what he would say. Grass is gone, sheep all sick, water holes dry. The banker wouldn't say a word. He knew exactly what needed to be done. He'd bring the man inside and seat him at a table by himself in the vault. Then he would bring out several bags of money and lay them before him and say, these are yours. This belongs to you. The Indian man would then spend about an hour in there looking at his money, holding it in his hand, stacking it neatly and counting it. When he was finished, he would come out and he would look at the banker and then he would declare, grass all green, sheep all well, water holes all full. And that was his practice. All this man wanted to do was review his resources. All this man wanted to do was to gaze at what was his, to behold what he saw the security he saw it as security, the security of his future. And he wanted to be reassured that the present circumstances he was facing would not have the final word that day. That was where his encouragement was to be found, at a bank, in a vault, holding money in his hands. Here in the book, or we more properly say the letter of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a group of Gentile Christians who are not only new to the Christian faith, but they have become Christians at a great cost. These Christians lived in the idol belt of the pagan heartland. For them, following Jesus meant losing their livelihood. It meant being cut off from their family. And in most cases, it meant facing severe persecution. In full awareness of this reality, Paul then begins his letter after his greeting. He begins by dragging them in to the riches of God's storehouse and sits them down in front of all that is theirs in and through Jesus Christ. And he encourages them in light of the perils that they face in their present world. Look, this is yours. Well, following Jesus may not be as perilous for us as it was for the Ephesians, but the reality is that following Jesus in a lost and sinful world, no matter where or when, following Jesus does come with its shares of trials and suffering. That's why as we come to our fifth and final core value here at the Granville Chapel, that is the gospel, that's why I chose this passage. There are certainly many passages in the Bible to where we could go to exposit the truth of the gospel. It felt a little bit as I prepared, like throwing darts at a dartboard, right? Which of these great passages can we go? But I chose this passage, not only because of the, the depth and the breadth of God's work in our salvation that it explores, but I also chose it because of the encouragement 
that it affords any and all who follow Jesus by faith. The text before us, the actual text, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is actually, and some of you know this, it's one continuous sentence in the original Greek language. That's why you may be like, why is he reading so fast? I tried to read it as it was one sentence, because it is in the original language. It's well over 200 words. For those of you who need something for the next Bible trivia night, it's the longest sentence in the Bible. It's just a few words short of the Gettysburg Address. There you go. But listen, it's more than just a sentence. It actually has a form to it. It has a form. It takes on the form of what is traditionally called in Hebrew, a blessing poem. This sentence is a blessing poem. And in fact, it's made abundantly clear right from the start. Look at verse three. God is to be blessed or praised. Blessed be God. Notice it goes on to say that God has blessed us. How? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God is to be blessed because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessings, those are the blessings that come from the Holy Spirit, not earthly or material blessings. These are spiritual blessings. You get the point. It's a blessing poem. But notice that this blessing poem has a purpose. The purpose of recounting. The purpose of rejoicing in all that God has done for us in our salvation. It's what one commentator calls theological doxology. Now, what does that mean? Doctrine that sings. It's doctrine or theology that sings. Look at verse six to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise, verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Doctrine that sings, theology that rejoices. So with this in mind, my aim this morning is to help you recount and to help you rejoice in the gospel resources that belong to you, that are yours by God's grace, and also to lead you to share those gospel resources with others. Now, this passage naturally breaks down into three portions, so I can do it right. We've, we've heard other elders preach this month, so you have to have three points. So here we go. You'll notice that in verses three through six, it speaks of the blessings that flow from the Father, verses seven through nine, speak of the blessings that flow from the Son, Jesus Christ, and 10 through 14 speak of the blessings that flow from the Spirit. So not only is it three points, but they're Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes this morning, point one, blessings from the Father, point two, blessings from the Son, and then point three, blessings from the Holy Spirit. So as we look, as we begin with the blessings that flow to us from the Father, we see right away in verses three through six, we see these two things that God has done. Paul says that God has chosen us and adopted us. He goes on later and says that God has predestined us. So we read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God chose us in Jesus Christ. 
This means that God, by his own sovereign grace, not because of anything in us, Titus 3 or 2 Timothy 1 mentions this, not because of anything good in us or because of any good work that we had done, only because of God's sovereign goodness and grace, he chose us for salvation. It's put out there plainly for us to read. Now, this is mysterious, is it not? Right away, some of us are like, theological debate, okay? It's mysterious. No one can know the mind of God or understand all his ways, but surely we can affirm what the Bible says here and what it says in other places. God chose us. Notice that Paul says he did this before the foundation of the world. God did this before he even created the world. God chose us. Who's us? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. God chose. Verse five echoes this sovereign grace when he breaks out the big word, predestined. And he brings it up later in the passage as well. God predestined us according to the purpose of his will. But notice the qualifier at the end of verse four. In love. For God so loved the world, right? God loves. And so God predestined. He chose in love because in our own sin. Paul's gonna make this clear in chapter two, if you're familiar with chapter two. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're dead. And in love, God chooses, predestines us. Why? Because we would never choose God on our own. We are incapable. It's important that you understand this. Many have and still object to predestination because they believe that our choices are more sovereign than God's choice. They won't say it that way, but that's what we say when we say that. The only problem is that in our natural state, in the deadness of our sin, we're completely incapable. We are unable of choosing God on our own. It's kind of like gravity, right? I can throw an apple. I can throw it up in the air. And once I release it, it can go any direction it would like, right? You're like, no, why? Because of gravity. The only direction it's gonna go is where? Down. Unless someone reaches in from the outside of that apple and changes its direction, it's always going to go down. Without God intervening in our life, where will we go? What will we choose? Down, hell, sin, death. That's where we're going. God's sovereign choice of us for salvation is not about taking away our ability to choose. It's actually him making us alive. It's him enabling us to choose so that we can choose him. The spirit making us alive. It's God's work. God makes us alive. We need God's supernatural grace to intercede in our lives and to make us alive, to cause us to be born again so that we can believe in him. And already like Pastor Dan, that was a giant steak you just laid in front of us. That's a big bite. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Bible teaches, that God predestined us in love according to the purpose of his own will. And you may be going, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from sin and given your life to Christ? Well, that's a really good beginning. 
and a really good evidence that God has chosen you because you were dead. Not just in need of a little bit of help, not just in need of some medicine to get over a sickness, you were dead. And God made you alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. We need not fear that. We must rejoice that God has worked. That's how Paul presents it plainly to the church in Ephesus. And that's how I then present it to you. Praise God for his divine initiative. Look back to the scriptures. This is how God has always worked. It was God who pursued Noah. It was God who pursued Abraham. It was God who even went after Paul who wrote this letter. It was God who went after me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. It was God who made me alive. That, that initiative is not a knee-jerk reaction to circumstances or condition. The Bible makes it clear that it was forged long ago in the heart of a loving father who was seeking to create and save a people for himself who would worship and glorify him forever. So if you're in Christ, God chose you to be in Christ because he loves you. But why? Why then did God do this? Look at three through six. What does it say? He chose us to be holy and blameless. God chose us to be his people. He chose us to be saints who are set apart from the world, people who are being conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God chose us so that we would reflect his glory here on earth. Second, Paul says that he predestined us to adoption. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. God adopts us into his family. And as such, we're given all the rights, all the privileges, all the affection that the son of God himself receives from the father. All the spiritual blessings are ours, all of them. Christ's sonship is ours. The status that he has before the father, we're not God, of course, but in Christ, God looks upon us and he sees the blood of Jesus Christ and accepts us as his children. Y'all okay today? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Do you see that the gospel leaves no room for boasting? The gospel leaves no room for boasting on our part. You can't boast in your works. Your works are filthy rags. You can't boast in your choices. What can you do? You boast in the cross. We behold the sovereign grace of God and rejoice that he has freely and unconditionally bestowed upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The king is on his throne and the king rules and reigns over hearts and praise God when he takes stubborn and sinful and rebellious and dead hearts just like mine and causes them to bow to Jesus. That's the first thing Paul wants the Ephesians, what he wants you to grasp, but he doesn't stop there. If that's like, that's, that's enough, right? <laughs> Praise God. He keeps going. Look where he goes in seven through nine. He tells us that the son has redeemed us and forgiven us. So here we come to our second point, blessings that flow or blessings from the son. Paul says that we have redemption through his blood. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by that? That we have redemption through his blood. Uh, perhaps a story. Stories are helpful. 
uh, for us to understand. So in this story, uh, we're in a city and on the shore of a great lake in this city lived a small boy who loved water and he loved sailboats. So deep was his fascination with sailboats that he, with the help of his father, spent months buying supplies and making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail at the edge of the water. One day, as he was watching with glee his boat sail in the water, one day as he's watching it, a a sudden gust of wind grabs a hold of his sailboat and sends it out far out of their reach. Imagine how the boy felt. He's devastated, right? I can't believe I lost my sailboat. He's inconsolable. But day after day, he would go back and walk along that beach in hopes that his boat would come back. But it was always in vain. It never showed up. Sometime later, he's in town and he walks by the toy store and he looks in the store window and what does he see? His boat. Wait, that's my boat. I made that. So he goes in, he's so happy. He tells the shopkeeper, thank you for finding my boat. I've come to take it home. Shopkeeper says, no, that's not your boat. I bought that boat from a fisherman and now I'm selling it. Would you like to buy it? Sir, I don't have any money and it's my boat. Nope. You need to go raise that money, son. So the boy spent weeks and weeks doing chores, doing things that he could to save up his money. And he went back to the store and he bought that boat. Holding that precious boat in his arms, this is what he said. You are twice mine now. You are twice mine because I made you and because I bought you. And so it is with Jesus Christ. Redemption is payment of a price or a ransom. The price that was paid was Christ's own blood and the object was our very souls. All of humanity was in the the slave market of sin. All those created by God in the slave market of sin, thus powerless to deliver themselves. But Christ has went in and purchased his church with an infinite price. Our redemption cost his life. He who made us has indeed purchased us back. That's what it means when we say that he has redeemed us. He's bought us back with a price. And not only has he redeemed us, but we also see here that we've been set free from the power of sin. We're we're no longer shackled to our sins. We're no longer slaves, but we are free. It says here that Christ has forgiven us all our trespasses. Think of some of those Old Testament passages. He's cast them as far as the East is from the West. He has put all of them behind his back. What does this mean? Christian, it means that the wrath of God against your sin was exhausted at the cross where Jesus died in your place. He took upon himself the punishment for your sin. Your sin indeed goes punished, but not by you. It's punished in Christ. And that's why in Romans 8, 1, Paul can say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means, Christian, that you're redeemed. It means that you're restored. It means that you're forgiven. It means that you're free. You're free from self-righteousness. You're free from guilt. You're free from condemnation. Christ has paid for every sin we just sang together. He has paid for your sin. 
There's nothing you can do to atone for your sin. It's been atoned for by Jesus Christ through faith in him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to behold the riches that are yours through the redeeming and forgiving work of Jesus Christ. What did we just sing moments ago? Such a freedom. Who could earn this? Who could pay for this forgiveness? Says the Savior, it is finished. Praise the Savior, Jesus Christ. Another song we sang, praise the Lord, the price is paid. The curse defeated by the lamb. We who once were slaves by birth, sons and daughters, now we stand. Redemption and forgiveness are doctrines that sing. In fact, I looked to Austin this week and I said, listen, buddy, if we cannot pick songs for this core value, we need another catalog of songs. I mean, for my part, I wanted to suggest like 50 to him uh, and we whittled it down to five. This is doctrine that sings. We sing of it every week. You sing of it wherever you go. This is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. Count your blessings, name them one by one. We've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, washed clean in the crimson river. I could go on for another hour quoting these wonderful and beautiful songs and hymns that we sing. The question is, when life is weighing you down, when you are enthralled or trapped in sin, do you look at that and say, how can I bear this load? How can I pay for this on my own? If you do that, if you find yourself doing that today, you are set free in Christ Jesus. He has paid for that sin. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess unto him. Friends, when we talk about sharing the gospel, we're not just talking about sharing the good news of the gospel to someone who's apart from Christ, but you and I need the gospel just as much living in Christ because it's easy to walk around as those who are defeated and condemned and as those who must somehow make penance for our sin. But listen, we cast that upon the Lord. We leave it at his feet. We repent and turn by his grace and we are forgiven. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. We need to live in that truth. That is doctrine that sings. And I love how Paul moves through this passage because you're full with blessing, right? You're bursting at the seams with reasons to praise God. And, and he's kind of like Steve Jobs used to be at those Apple events. You know, one more thing. He'd come back out on stage, one more thing. And if you're not familiar with that, look it up. But that's kind of what he does here. One more thing. Blessings from the Spirit. Blessings from the Spirit. In verse 11, Paul says that we've received an inheritance in Christ. He follows it up in verses 13 and 14 by saying that we were sealed. We were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, the one promised to us by Jesus who would 
come to us and be our comforter and our counselor. He's the one who would teach us all things and, and grant us the words to speak, the one who would convict us of sin and lead us in paths of righteousness. He would be the one who would intercede for us in our prayers. This Holy Spirit, this person, God himself, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit. It's a, a guarantee. Do you know what that is? Anybody here familiar with banking? To deposit a guarantee of your inheritance in Christ. As those disciples to be apostles were fretting over Jesus's departure, aren't you glad he didn't say, it's all right, I'm gonna go, you figure it out. Get the best strategic planning team together, find a way to make this work, take all that I've taught you and just go. No, I will send another helper, a helper of the same kind. I'll send my spirit. Father and I will send him and he will be your guarantee, your seal. You know, in the ancient world, this is important. It's important in some cases today. A seal is something applied to a document. It provides a guarantee that uh, its source is correct, right? It really comes from who it says it comes from and it's authenticity. The person who's doing it says, this is real, it's not fake, so think about that for a moment because the Holy Spirit is God himself. God himself seals his own promises. God himself seals his own promise. There's to be no doubt about the source or authenticity of our inheritance because we have the spirit. All the spiritual blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean practically? When Jesus says that all who come to me, I will not cast out. I will certainly raise them up on the last day. He means it. When he says, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. He means it. When he says that one day you will be with him in paradise. He means it. When he says that even your suffering and trials are for good and for his glory, he means it. And he says that you will not only see his face, but the father's face, that you will enjoy eternal life forever, free from sin. He means it. It really is yours. What just blows my mind. Sorry for the boss. I, I, just, I can't wrap my mind around it. It's too much. It's absolutely too much. This is a rich in a full passage. I could have spent months on this passage, but it's a full gospel. It's a rich gospel. You've been chosen and adopted by the father. You've been redeemed and forgiven by the son and you've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. This passage has led you into the riches of God's storehouse. It sets you down in front of all that is yours in and through Jesus Christ. And it's encouraged you in the light of all that you face. So what's your response? What's your response to the riches of the gospel? I read recently the story of a young boy. He went to the local store with his mother and the shop owner, a, a very kind man, passed him a really large jar of suckers and invited him to help himself. Not just one, take a handful. 
The kids in the room are like, yeah, that never happens. Well, uncharacteristically, the boy held back. Eh, He acted shy. So the shop owner pulled out a handful for him, reached right in there and grabbed a big handful and gave it to him. The boy smiled and walked out with his mom. The mom was like, why were you so shy? Why didn't you just reach in there and grab a handful when he offered them? You know what the boy said? That's right. Mom, did you see how big his hand was? His hand is bigger than mine. I'm not a fool. Let that sink in. God's hand is certainly bigger. You're in the hamster wheel of life, searching and striving and grabbing for all the blessings that you think are right there in front of you. All these earthly and material blessings that you're trying to grab a hold of to find security and strength and hope in. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that the things of this world are bad. They're good. God's given them to us to enjoy. But let that not be your storehouse. Let that not be the place you go when you need assurance of who you are and where you will one day be. It's not in your garage. It's not in your house. It's not at your family reunion. It's not in any of these places. You know where it is? It's in heaven and it's yours. It is already yours and it will be yours through Jesus Christ and faith in him. That gives us reason to rejoice. The gospel is a catalyst that lights a fire for us to rejoice in the goodness that we've received through God. We didn't earn this, we don't deserve it, but God gives it to us freely in his love. So here's a couple of questions for you. Number one, why would you not wanna share that with others? Do you believe the gospel? Have you confessed of your sin? Have you repented of your sin and turned to God in faith? The Bible tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in him? Have you professed with your mouth, confessed with your mouth? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and yielded your life unto his? Has he made you alive by his spirit? If he hasn't, I pray that he would right now. And if he has, I pray that you would tell the world, go tell it on a mountain, Christ has saved you. Christians, don't let the gospel grow dull. Don't let it become another buzzword in big evangelicalism. Don't let it become just something that adorns your shelves. Let it be the thing that ignites the fire in your zeal and life for Christ. Christ is all. Second, why would you not share it with one another? When you see your brother or sister suffering under the weight of sin and suffering and struggle, why would you not go to them, wrap your arms around them and remind them who they are in Christ? When they are shaken by trials and all the sufferings of this world and they're wondering, am I really in Christ? I'm suffering in my assurance. Why would you not sit next to them, hold their hand and read scripture to them and remind them whose they are in Jesus Christ? Share the gospel with the lost and the saved. Amen? Amen. And amen. Would you grab your bulletins?